So I heard an amusing quip the other day that learning to invest in a zero-rate environment is like learning to walk in a zero-gravity environment. That's Mark Furman, a principal at Arrow Global Group, an investment manager with 70 billion euros of assets under management, 10 billion euros of which is in institutional-grade real estate. That's the bit he works in. He's describing a marketplace that's changed dramatically following a year of soaring inflation and rising interest rates. The reality for the last 10 years has been that everything has been going up, underpinned by zero and negative interest rates. But if you go back to the time before the GFC, and that's something at Arrow that we can do, right? Our senior investment team on average has 25 years of investing experience, right? So as a group, our experience much predates the zero rate environment. And you know, while at the moment volatility is extraordinary, for much of you know investing history, it's been true that you had to pick your geographies carefully, that you had to build in the margin of safety in your underwriting, and that you couldn't underwrite everything to perfection. So in some sense, we're quite comfortable operating in this uncertain environment. And then at a more practical level, right, I think it's reasonable to assume that interest rates will normalize, that inflation will normalize at a level that's somewhat above where it has been, but we don't know if that's in 2024, 2025, or 2026. In today's special episode, sponsored by Arrow Global, Mark and his colleague Ellis Scher, the CEO of Maslow Capital, one of Arrow's businesses responsible for providing real estate development finance, will draw from their investing experience. We'll explore the implications of the current rising interest rate environment on the European real estate residential finance market, and hear some salient wisdoms on how to navigate it. I'm Jonathan Brass, Editor-in-Chief for the Real Estate Publications at PEI Group, and this is Spotlight. While Mark can talk from an investor equity or borrower standpoint, Ellis can share perspectives on lending while the key determinant of leverage, interest rates, are in such a state of flux. In other words, and to use industry parlance, they have the entire capital stack covered. For Mark, A meditation on Europe's residential markets today requires an understanding of the cycle between the global financial crisis of 2008 and now. I think it's important to keep in mind that there's a number of fundamental differences between today and the last cycle, right? Banks are much better capitalized to start with. Developers didn't go for the same kind of crazy leverage that that they had going into the last downturn, right? When it was perfectly common to have 100% advance rate debt. And there is a lot of private equity dry powder hunting opportunities, right? So as a working assumption, I would say that it's unlikely that we will experience the level of distress that we saw last time. And yet, a period of volatility could keep going for a while. That would lead to repricing of assets. Arrow has operations in the UK, Ireland, the Netherlands, Italy, and Portugal. For investors in equity-driven strategies, figuring out what tactics might precipitate a workable deal differs market by market. One of the ways that I've seen the bid-ask close and that I've seen investors get comfortable with taking development risk, and we're having a few discussions like this at the moment in Milan and Lisbon, is that instead of commanding a big price up front for a piece of land, right, which effectively requires a developer to price to perfection their business plan, I'm now seeing more deals where the landowner contributes the land maybe gets a partial payment up front and then you have an earnout component right so that the risk between the landowner and the developer is shared 
It's this type of lateral thinking Mark believes is necessary for firms continuing to invest during this time of pricing dislocation. And we're seeing developers having to be creative in a range of ways to still make projects work, right? So one of the things that I've seen applied in particular in Dublin successfully is effectively deferring the point in time at which you commit to a general contractor and carrying out more of the early stage work of a project outside of the framework and the markup of a general contract. And that achieves two things, right? One is you lower your overall project cost because the GC markup is applied to a smaller part of the project, but you also buy yourself time to negotiate and optimize a contract with a general contractor while still keeping your project going, right? So our colleagues in Dublin have applied this successfully. The other mechanism I've seen, and that's something that we went through in Lisbon recently, you separate the market risk from the execution and operational risk, and you still impose all of the execution risk to the contractor, but you have effectively inflation indexation on certain particularly sensitive commodities. So that's another way I've seen people kind of resolve this cost issue. And then in terms of the exit, right, and demand for the finished product, that's been surprisingly robust across the board, right? So we have a rental business in Dublin that aggregates and renovates individual apartments. And there we still have a 30 to 1 ratio of applicants to units. We still lease units on average three days after completing a renovation. We are seeing other PRS schemes that are ahead of our own ones in Dublin being delivered and leasing something like 30 units a week, right, which is very, very strong and in line with what people expected. Our Portuguese development platform, Norfin, last weekend launched a for sale residential project in Lisbon and on the first weekend signed uh, 45 pre-sales agreements out of a project of 150 at very, very healthy prices. So the end demand for now is still strong, although, of course, as increasing rates keep feeding through the system and as the rising energy costs impact household wallets more and more over the winter, we have concerns about how long that will continue. But as it stands right now, in all the markets we're active, the supply for the end product is still very strong. Ultimately, critical to Mark's philosophy is getting an investment's location and demand assessments spot on and allowing for a healthy margin of calculation when underwriting. And so the key to still successfully investing in real estate in that environment is to pick things where you have fundamental conviction that the project works and you underwrite and structure in such a way that you don't lose your shirt if you're wrong by six months or by 12 months in your business plan, right? So it's about conviction in the fundamentals and then enough conservatism in the underwriting and the structuring to be able to sustain another 12 to 24 months of volatility. And whatever you do, don't get tempted to seek bottom of the market prices via properties in distressed situations. By Mark's reckoning, if something is distressed now, it was likely to have been a broken proposition before today's economic volatility. So I think if you're looking at distressed projects at the moment, there is a risk that what you're seeing is actually the bottom of the barrel. So what if you're looking to access Europe's residential markets via a lending strategy? Generally speaking, debt is becoming an increasingly attractive means of accessing real estate. There is a broadening belief that the downside protection inherent with being a lender outweighs the uncapped upside traditionally sought by equity investors. In other words, the chances of obtaining a limited but more certain return is today seen as more attractive than going for a higher return given the uncertainty brought about by a macroeconomy facing recession and generationally high inflation. Here's Elisher. You know, I used to have this naive thought when I started out that uh, macro didn't matter. That's how naive I was. That's going back 20 odd years. And that you could really rely on your borrower and you could rely on the individual assets can be further from the truth in that sort of naivety. The truth of the matter is that this is a cyclical business. 
And those cycles are heavily influenced by what the government does and doesn't do. Today, Ellis spends plenty of time eyeing government policy to determine the direction of travel for his business, which to date has funded more than £4 billion of real estate projects in the UK in the living sectors via development financing arrangements. In his experience, it's policy which sets the tone for where valuations land. And certainty around valuations is what Arrow and other such lenders need in order to get comfortable lending. It responds fairly slowly in terms of valuations because it is not a public market. And everyone is now sat here looking at life and thinking, where's red book value going to be trading in three to four months time when land registry gets updated? The other area where the government have a huge impact is in the planning regimes right? They control the supply, they control the density, and often the schemes that we see now are only financially viable if the council and the government get behind high density consents. They will otherwise just be mothballed, potentially repossessed. Land prices will have to adjust southwards in order to make a scheme viable again. So I actually would say that fewer things influence the direction of the cycle than government, right? But since government policy is typically out of the sphere of influence of private real estate lenders, what's the right approach to a lending strategy when a market is in a state of flux with decreasing certainty around valuations? So we look at a broad range of signals, should I say. In no particular order, we look at the borrower. I've had plenty of experiences in my career where the site looked really good. The location was really good. It looked viable on paper. A little bit of digging on the borrower and you'll find that the borrower's credentials don't line up with the quality of the real estate that's being presented. And I have made that mistake before, thinking that the real estate will always win. That has not always been my experience. So the credentials of the borrower are absolutely key. We've honed some of our underwriting to actually have a deep look into the borrower's past performance, what their reputation is amongst other lenders, peer group lenders, it's a small industry. People talk more than perhaps developers and brokers might think. We look at litigation history, is often a window into how a borrower deals with their supply chain, how they deal with their lending partner. That's one aspect. The other aspect that we really are quite focused on is the suitability of what's being built. Again, we've had circumstances where you know, we've unpacked a transaction, looked at it and said, well, no one in this neighborhood is going to buy this stock. The age demographic didn't tie up with what was being built. The size of the units may be inappropriate. The type of housing might be inappropriate. You know, we've been in areas where it's a very family-centric demographic and they're building two-bed apartments. So what's being built is absolutely fundamental to us. The demand in that area is fundamental to us. Not all neighborhoods are equal. I buy the macro argument about the supply-demand imbalance, but that's not always true. In the micro environment, you may well get subsectors of the market that are actually oversupplied. So we have a look at what's trading on the market, how long it's been on the market, how many price reductions existing stock has had in order to move. Same in the rental market. We get information about income in a specific neighborhood. We have a lot of data feeds that inform us on income levels. We have our own mortgage multiplier calculator that advises us that, you know, what extent of the cohort in a given postcode can actually afford what's being built? What can they afford to rent? And that'll provoke debate with the developer. I'm not saying we're always right about it, but you sort of do get these markers that say, oh, 
not sure about this business case. Let's go and chat to the developers. There are a number of considerations for sure. Ellis says that while all of this is important, one of the most critical components of credit underwriting is also one of the simplest, alignment. We have a look at the viability of the funding structure and alignment with the equity. As you go more extreme and you present it with a case that says the sponsor's got no financial connection to the deal, save for the opportunity cost of the income that they would lose or the profit they would lose if they didn't do this deal, that becomes a lot harder to execute as the developer becomes more financially entrenched with the deal because they're providing their own equity and they're not using third-party equity. They not overly levered, they're not taking in mezzanine or preferred equity. That puts less pressure on the financial structure that shows a higher profit on cost. That obviously makes the project look more appealing to us, more exciting. And then obviously we look at the exit viability. We say, you know, what are the absorption rates for the stock? What happens if it cannot be sold? What's the plan B? What's the plan C? How do we feel about that risk envelope? What's the financing market look like? Never mind the end user market. What does the financing market look like? Can you bridge it out? Can you buy to let it out? Has the landlord got the financial resources to retain it if they can't sell it? So all of those things we look at in a pretty systematic way. So as a postcode, if you like, comes in from one of our originating sources, we can run a postcode and we can tell you within five to 10 minutes what a neighborhood feels like, what a neighborhood needs, and whether or not the proposed project fits well with that. We overlay that with impending supply. So we want to know how is our project going to compete with other planning applications that are coming through. Are those planning applications going to land at the same time that we're completing our project? Because, you know, in an ideal world, you want to be the only show in town at one extreme, or can you live with being, you know, the second or third show in town? With these questions becoming increasingly complicated to answer right now, it's forcing many traditional forms of finance to the market sidelines. Ellis welcomes this. He says Arrow is now seeing as many as 700 transactions a month, far more than what he saw in steadier times. To our borrowers and to the providers of opportunities, we say a similar thing. We say our capital base is much more flexible than the constraints that you might get in a regulated fund or that you might get in a banking or an insurance environment. This is absolutely the time for debt funds that don't have that sort of regulation to be able to gain market share through their flexibility, through the fact that we do not have single counterparty constraints, we don't have the same sort of capital attribution, either under the Bank of England regulations or the BAL regulations. So I'd like to think that this is a moment when debt funds such as Maslow and our peer group will see, and not necessarily will do, but will see more of the market than they ordinarily would see when things were more normalized. Investing in today's private real estate markets is becoming a trickier affair given current adverse market conditions. Firms like Arrow will testify to the extra layers of scrutiny any single transaction now requires. But at the same time, it's alternative lending businesses like Arrow which intend to make the most of today's uncertainty. That's all for today. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts or at any of PEI Group's various titles online. With PERE, I'm Jonathan Brass. Thanks for listening.